John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews had learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus' hour is rapidly approaching. The time of his death appointed by the Father, draws ever near. John's gospel has so far been different from the synoptics in a lot of ways. Now, his record of Jesus' life and ministry will start to closely parallel those of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When we left Jesus, he had withdrawn to Ephraim to avoid a premature arrest. Based on the timeline John gives, he seems to have stayed there about two or three weeks. Now he returns to Bethany, the place where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. The events of this Sabbath are recorded by Matthew and Mark as well. The details in each gospel are similar enough that we know they're writing about the same event, but there are specific details in each account that reflect the author's emphasis. Luke also records a story where a woman dries Jesus' feet with her hair, but there are so many differences in that story, it's clearly not this same event. A few weeks in the wilderness, and then back to Bethany. Do you think it's a coincidence that he returns to his friends on his final Sabbath? I don't. We just sang in Come Thou Long Expected Jesus that he came to earth to taste our sadness. One of the realities of the incarnation is that Jesus became fully man, experiencing the bad and also the good. Sabbath rest with believing friends can be one of life's richest blessings. The combination of worship, fellowship, and a celebratory meal with people you love and who love you is hard to beat. It provides the option, at least, of a weekly Uber Thanksgiving dinner. In one week, Jesus will lay down his life for the sins of his people. In one week, his body will be placed in a tomb. But today... Today, he will be with his friends in the worship and fellowship of the Sabbath. 
with everything else that is going on, with everything dark and painful that is to come, today he will find refreshment and encouragement in sharing the Sabbath with God's people. And they with him. It's an opportunity that remains for us today if we choose to take it up ourselves. That's what Jesus chose to do with his Sabbath. So what did his friends in Bethany choose to do with theirs? They made their gratitude and joy for Christ visible. They glorified God and enjoyed him. Specifically, it says they put together a celebratory dinner in honor of Christ. And the disciples were there and Lazarus and we're told in Matthew and Mark, Simon the leper was there. It was his home. Each had their own good reasons to honor and love Jesus. He had brought the disciples to himself in faith, giving their lives glorious purpose in God's plan of salvation. Jesus had cured Simon from leprosy. They still called him Simon the leper, but he was He was cured from that which was a social and religious death sentence. And from Lazarus. How can you measure the appropriate amount of honor and love you owe to the one who brings you back from death itself? What reasons do you have to love and honor Christ? Or what's your estimation of the value of Christ's love for you. These friends in Bethany love and honor Christ for what he's done for them, and they haven't even seen the cross yet. The freedom from all death that Jesus won for his people and the price he paid to win it are still unknown to them. And these friends respond to Jesus' love for them with devotion and honor and love in return. Does our response to the love of God for us in Christ seem fitting in comparison? You know, the other occasion where Jesus' feet are wiped by a woman's hair, that story I mentioned recorded in Luke, it often has the heading in your Bible, a sinful woman forgiven. And while she did bring ointment to Jesus with which to anoint, that's not what she was wiping with her hair. It was her own tears that she had poured out on his feet as she sat there believing she had found the one who could forgive sin. And that's why Jesus says of her, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. It's a good reminder that how we respond in love to God, worship and devotion, these are a good indicator of our assessment of how much love God showed to us in Christ. The most compelling example of that in this story comes not from Martha, who served the celebratory dinner, nor from Simon the leper, nor even from Lazarus. It comes from Mary. As she stands and beholds the event in front of her, as she considers what's happening in her life and assesses reality in front of her, she is overwhelmed 
by the evidence of God's love for her in Christ. Notice the therefore in verse 3. Therefore, Mary did this, indicating that it's the details of verse 2 that drive her to this action. Verse 2, Lazarus is reclining at the table. Martha is being hospitable. All the believing friends are sitting around the table enjoying the Sabbath meal. And all of this is because of what Jesus had done for them. Without his very specific work in their lives, none of this sweet fellowship is possible. And therefore, taking all that in, out of the abundance of gratitude and joy and love for Christ that it sprung up in her heart, she grabs the jar of ointment and runs to anoint Jesus' body. She can't help it. When she sees and understands how what is happening in her life is the direct result of God's love for her in Christ, She can't help it. This is where it can be helpful to cross-reference Matthew and Mark's telling of the event because they each include some different details. And one set of details that they all include are intended to communicate to us how expensive this ointment is. John himself says that it's expensive. He says it's made of pure nard. Nard is an aromatic herb that was grown in the Himalayan mountains near India and Tibet. It wasn't easy to get the stuff, and it certainly wasn't easy to get it from the Himalayas to Bethany. And so it's really expensive. Matthew and Mark include the detail that it's kept in a large alabaster jar, which is itself expensive, and it's, and it's large because of how much it contains. And yet Mary is willing to break this lovely jar so that all of it can be poured out in honor of Christ. She doesn't want any residual ointment left behind in the jar. She just smashes it so that all of it can be poured out on the Lord. They tell us it's about 11 or 12 ounces. (laughs) 11 or 12 ounces of ointment poured out on Jesus' body. That's why it was enough to anoint him from head, which Matthew and Mark emphasize, to feet, which John emphasizes. Matthew and Mark are emphasizing honor as the head of the king of all creation is anointed by his servant. John, on the other hand, focusing on Jesus' feet, is emphasizing the humility, the complete humility of Mary's devotion. That's also clear from the lavish nature of her sacrifice. She's not holding anything back. She uses the whole jar so much that the excess ointment pools at his feet, and that's what she has to wipe up with her hair. Can devotion to the Lord ever be excessive? Self-righteousness and performative religion can be excessive, but, but real righteousness, genuine devotion to Christ, you can never give too much. John also emphasizes Mary's singular focus on Christ. 
She is concerned with what he deserves, with what he thinks of her and nothing else. The men are reclining on the floor, around the floor height table after the meal, what we would describe as lounging on their sides. And what Mary does is borderline scandalous, not sinful or even close, but a significant social faux pas. Seeing the excess ointment on his feet, she takes down her hair publicly in front of these men in complete violation of social modesty customs. And she's not looking to be countercultural. She's not looking to offend. She does it because she's not thinking in the least about what these other men at the table think. She is singularly focused on Christ and what he deserves and what he needs and what she can do to show her love and gratitude to him. And so without a second thought, she takes her hair down and she wipes his disgusting feet with her own hair. Girls, can you imagine if your dad put way too much sunscreen on And it dripped all the way down to his nasty, sandy feet that you would take your hair down and love him so much to wipe all of that. Oh, it just gives you the shivers, doesn't it? Mary didn't care. So great was her devotion to the Lord. If honoring him brought her social dishonor. If honoring him made her hair grimy and nasty, who cares? All praise to Christ. Throughout Christian history, there have been various movements in the church led by people who strongly desire to be offensive to the world, to stand out by being counter-cultural. But you know, it's the motive that makes all the difference. If we're looking to the world for direction, either to do what they do or simply to do what they don't like, we're still looking in the wrong place. Mary looked to Christ and did what was right. She focused all of her energy and attention on glorifying Christ. And the fact that this violated customs and offended others was a byproduct of serving the Lord. If we offend the world because our goal is to be offensive, shame on us. When we offend the world, it must always be because like Mary, we are singularly focused on honoring Christ. Now, John only records the feet part of the anointing. He's emphasizing Mary's humility. This story is placed right after the story about the religious rulers and right before the story where the disciples are taught to wash feet, to have their feet washed. This is no noble task in the eyes of the world. It's pretty gross. It's pretty humbling. But Mary is a humble servant of Christ. She stands in stark contrast. Think about those religious rulers, those powerful elites in the church and in Israel. What are they doing at this very moment? They're plotting the death of Christ and of Lazarus. These who are supposed to be the shepherds of the flock are themselves the wolves preying on the sheep. And what is Mary 
this worldly speaking, insignificant woman in God's kingdom doing? She's humbling herself, serving the king of all creation. And Mary, this true follower of God, it says, fills Simon's house with this incredible fragrance. Now, I get that the scent comes from the perfumed ointment that she's using. But haven't you also experienced the incredible aroma of a home where Christ is loved and honored through hospitality and service? I'm convinced that both sweet aromas permeated this house. One scholar observed, one hardly knows which to admire most, the irrepressible character of Mary's devotion or the lavish nature of her sacrifice. This is why we can truthfully refer to hospitality and welcoming as a ministry. Being invited, being welcomed, being served, these meet needs that are deep within all people. When we give to others, especially sacrificially, we are ministering to those needs. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be from an expensive alabaster jar. It can be just driving to a widow in her grief and distress. Judas doesn't understand this at all. To some extent, neither do the other disciples, at least not yet. Matthew and Mark's accounts indicate that at least some of the other disciples initially side with Judas' criticism. But Judas said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas was an accountant. He had done the math in his head. He had estimated the worth of this as an entire year of wages for the average laborer. He sees Mary's act of unrestrained love and devotion and all he can think is, what a waste! That could have been sold to enrich our treasury and thereby, he claims, help the poor. We talked about lies last week and this is a biggie. Is the truth, John reveals, is that Judas was stealing from the disciples' treasury. He wasn't concerned about the poor, but about his own access to more money. And he carefully hid this truth behind a facade of generosity. And so he is the first to protest, what a waste, methinks, as Shakespeare put it, this disciple dost protest too much. There's a lot of false generosity in the world. False generosity is full of words, but it never acts or helps to serve. It always criticizes how something could have been done better while doing nothing itself. False generosity wants credit and attention, but never sacrifice. But don't be fooled. Never practice this shameful counterfeit. When you need to be reminded what real generosity look is, look not to Judas' words, but to Mary's actions. 
Her generosity comes from a heart of worshipful devotion to God, which is where true generosity always begins. That's why Judas knew nothing of it. He did not love God. And so generosity was offensive to him. One pastor writes that the native language of love is eager generosity was something Judas could not comprehend. The selfish person cannot understand the unselfish one. When you are truly generous, it will bother some people who see it. They'll call it excessive or unwise, perhaps because they truly believe it or perhaps because their conscience is crying out against them for their greed. They'll call you a fool that you're ripe to be taken advantage of. They'll accuse you of flaunting wealth or pretending to have more than you do. Or maybe they'll say that it's good to be generous, but you should have been more strategic in your giving. All the while, they give nothing. That's the approach of Judas' accusation, and it sounds pretty persuasive. An entire year's wages spent merely to pour it out on Jesus? He's a thief, but maybe he's right. Couldn't something better have been done with this money? Some of the disciples are convinced. Mark says that some speak up in agreement with Judas. Matthew says that some are indignant at what Mary has done. Imagine poor Mary, overcome with love and devotion for the Savior. And she throws herself and the best that she has into showing Christ her love for him. And if she were to look around the room at these faces, no doubt she would have been discouraged. She endeavored to do good. She saw Jesus reclining at the table, talking and laughing in fellowship with the man he had cured of leprosy, with the disciples he called to himself in salvation, and with with Lazarus, her beloved brother, brought back from death. And Mary had her own salvation for which to be grateful to Christ. Mary takes it all in. She considers what she sees and she concludes that her cup overflows. And so her heart overflows. And so her alabaster jar overflows as well. She can't contain her love for Christ. She wants to honor him in the way that seems the most fitting. And she looks around, even at Christian people, and they despise what she's done. Brothers and sisters, let's not do this. Let's not do this. She took the most precious thing she could lay her hands on, and she gave it to Christ in unrestrained abundance. What precious thing do you have to offer Christ? And whatever it is, are are you bringing it in abundance? Or are you holding something back? Now, Mary intentionally did much that is praiseworthy. She honors Christ on purpose. And 
like many others in John's gospel, she also says and does more than even she knows. And that's what Jesus says in her defense. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now his response takes some unpacking because it sounds like he's saying she should save the ointment for later, but that's because this is a condensed expression. Some words are left out. The meaning is abbreviated, and it's up to the hearer to notice and supply the omitted words in order to understand. It's not an unusual way of speaking. We do this all the time in our own speech. And in fact, Judas just did it in verse 5, and I bet you didn't even notice If you read Judas's words in verse 5, literally, he says that we should sell the ointment and give the ointment to the poor. But you can't do both. It's an abbreviated sentence. Our minds subconsciously add the abbreviated words to get the speaker's intent. Sell the ointment and give the money that we gain from selling the ointment to the poor. All those words are abbreviated. They're left out. Your mind knows to supply them. That's the same thing here. What verse 7 means is leave her alone She obtained and used the ointment in order to keep it for the day of my burial. Thus, she anoints him now, as Matthew and Mark record, to prepare Jesus for his death. Mary was, one scholar says, the best listener Jesus ever had. She believed that he would die for his people. She could not have known when it would happen, but she believed that it would happen. And in preparation for this, she bought this expensive ointment for the anointing of his body when it did happen. Now, it's possible that she understood there would be no opportunity to anoint his body at the time he actually died, but that's not what I think. I think that it's more like a young man who buys an engagement ring with grand designs of an elaborate proposal, but the thing is burning a hole in his pocket. And overcome with anticipation and joy, he proposes in a driveway. (laughs) Mary bought this to anoint the Lord on the day of his death. But seeing him reclining at table, seeing him in the love and fellowship of Sabbath blessing, seeing Lazarus, her beloved brother, not just alive, but enjoying a meal and in fellowship with the Lord, seeing Martha use her gifts to serve these men, seeing Simon the leper able to be touched and to touch others. Mary sees this and takes it all in, and she's so overwhelmed with gratitude, she just can't wait. She wants to honor him now, and she grabs it though he's still living, and she anoints him head to toe. But Jesus knows what she doesn't, just how close he is to death. And that's why he accepts the anointing, as lavish as it is. Because given the circumstances, it's entirely appropriate. No one deserves honor more than God. And no act of God deserves more praise from his people than the passion of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves the poor more than Judas does. 
Jesus, Jesus teaches his followers to be generous with them, to always be ready to help those in need. But on this occasion, he defends Mary's extravagance as entirely appropriate because he is worthy of all glory, majesty, power, and authority before all ages and now and forevermore. And Mary, in love and devotion, is preparing him for his death. Now, except Judas, everyone else around this table has saving faith in Christ. And there's a contrast here between Mary and the others that's not between belief and unbelief. It's between following in a way that is hesitant, limited, and calculating, and Mary's unrestrained devotion. The disciples will come around. They will all, in time, show incredible commitment to Christ, a willingness to lay down their lives for the sake of his gospel. And I have no doubt that here in this moment, they love Christ. But we do have here an example of how to love Christ more. You can be in the Lord and still practice careful, calculating, hesitant devotion. Faith is the gift of God. Even those with hesitant devotion are forever secure in Christ. I'm not talking about that. But I'm asking you this. Why would anyone want to stop there? Haven't you known someone in the family of God who lives with unrestrained exuberance for Christ? Someone that you think in the privacy of your own thoughts is just a little too zealous for Jesus, a little over the top in their faith. Children, I want you to be one of those people. I want you to be joyful when to be cool is to be cynical, to be encouraging, to build others up when to be cool is to be critical and to tear down. I want you to be thankful when others choose to be envious, jealous. Like Mary, I want you to be so humble that the world says you ought to be ashamed. Be so exuberant and unrestrained in the ways that you love God that others are a little embarrassed for you. I want you to be so generous that people call you a fool so unconcerned about what the world thinks that God himself comes to your defense. I want you to make your parents feel guilty that you seem to love God more than they do. Speaking of love for God, the passage ends with the rare positive description from the crowds. (laughs) The people in verses 9 through 11 are from the same larger crowd of curious busybodies as before. They were the ones wondering if Jesus would even show up in Jerusalem for the Passover. And now they get word that Jesus is coming and, in fact, has already arrived in Bethany. But notice that some from this crowd are now more than curious. They're being drawn. They're being drawn by the Spirit of God. And so on Saturday evening, at the end of Sabbath observance, they come to Bethany to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. 
And they're not mere thrill seekers. Because in the sign that Jesus is alive, they finally see the thing signified, which is Jesus' power over death. And they believe. It's clear from the language in verse 11 that they were going away and believing in him. That is, they're leaving something behind and going to something else. It's also clear from the response of the religious rulers, their insistence that now Lazarus too has to die. The very fact that Lazarus is alive serves as a sign to the power of God over death. And that sign, humanly speaking, for anyone willing to consider it, causes people to put their trust in Jesus. Those who by faith moved away from the religion of these Jewish authorities and instead toward genuine devotion in Christ have been drawn by God to see what is true. They've been drawn by God to leave behind a form of religion that has the appearance of godliness but denies its power. And they've been drawn to the power that was able to heal Simon the leper. The power that was able to raise Lazarus from the dead. The power that was able to transform these stumbling, bumbling disciples into apostles for the glory of God. This power that was so transformative in the life of Mary. They see that Jesus is the power of God. And when we see that, and we really see it, we do what they did. We leave all other religious loves behind. And we go find Christ and follow Christ. And we do what Mary did. We don't hold back. We take the most valuable things we have to offer. And we pour them lavishly at the feet of Christ. What will we do? We can guard our resources, our time, our energy, and our money. Or we can pour out what we have in abundant devotion. We can live with silent gratitude to Christ for salvation. Or we can exhaust the patience of others, constantly singing the praises of our Savior. We can maintain a respectable, socially acceptable religion. Or we can offend the world by our generosity, our hospitality, and humility. The question is this. Will we fix our eyes on the world and do what they tell us to do or what they tell us not to do? Or will we simply fix our eyes on Christ and do all that flows naturally from that? 